All right, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 17, please. John chapter 17. We started in chapter 17 a couple of weeks ago, and so I want to just remind you of what we have talked about already. John chapter 17 is, is the record of, of Jesus' personal prayer to God his Father, and the whole chapter is, is a record of that prayer. And, it, and this prayer comes on the tail end of, of all that Jesus has been doing from chapter 13 through chapter 16. What we remember is that Jesus was teaching, Jesus was preparing His disciples for what was just ahead. And several chapters in the Gospel of John here uh, record all that took place just hours, hours before Jesus went to the cross. And in that time, uh, Jesus' focus was on His disciples to prepare them for what was just ahead. And it ended, the narrative ended with chapter 16, and then you get into chapter 17, and it just records this prayer that Jesus prays to God His Father. And we said that the chapter would divide up into three sections, and the first part is verses 1 through 5, which is where we're at today, where Jesus prays for Himself. And then the second section is that Jesus prays for His disciples. And the third section, Jesus concludes by praying for all believers, including us at the end verses, and we'll get to those as we work our way through here. But last time we noted that Jesus prayed this prayer out loud, and He did it for the benefit of His disciples. And Jesus often did that in His ministry, where He prayed for the benefit of other people, and it is our privilege as well to be able to read these words and hear this prayer of Jesus. You remember in John chapter 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, in verse 42, he said, I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And Jesus prayed to God his Father for the benefit of people that they would believe in the Lord. And, and Jesus desired to teach his disciples and to help them understand that this same close communion that I have with my Father you can have too, and you will have. While Jesus was on the earth, Jesus said, you hadn't prayed to God, because when I've been here, I've met your needs. I've provided for you, but I'm leaving. And when I go, you need to understand that you can have a relationship with God the Father too. You can pray yourself to Him. We also noted that the setting of this prayer comes right after Jesus' words of comfort regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit that He would send. And Chapter 18 records all the events that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so this prayer of Jesus is sandwiched right between all of those. And, and then we talked about the fact that there was one main subject that we find in the words of Jesus that was also for the benefit of the disciples. And that main subject was the glory of God. How Jesus lived a life for the glory of God. It's what drove Jesus. It was His mission, the glory of God the Father. And so let's just look at a few verses here and remind you of what we looked at already. In verses 1 through 5, let's re read this, you follow along. These words spake Jesus and lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. 
Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Last time we talked about, uh, first of all, in verse 1, Jesus' prayer posture. The Bible says these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. And the application we made from all of that was, is that there seems to be many postures for prayer in the Bible. And we looked at a couple of different ones. But Jesus looked up to his Father. And, and we talked about how you know that might feel weird or awkward to us because we've been taught and we've been trained to bow our heads and close our eyes when we pray. But the reality of it is, brothers and sisters in the Lord, is that because of Christ, we can look up to the Father. When Jesus, when, when God sees us, if we've been saved, when God sees us, He doesn't see our sin. What He sees is the righteousness of his son. We've been justified. We've been declared righteous and we enjoy a righteous standing before God because of what Jesus has done. And the psalmist said, "Unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens." And it speaks to our relationship to God now because of Jesus Christ, that we have access to God Almighty. We have access to the holy God of of creation, the God of the universe. We have access to Him and we can come into His presence boldly because of what Jesus Christ has done. Secondly, we looked at how Jesus called out to God by name. He calls Him Father in verse 1. Father. God goes by many names in the Scriptures. Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. That's the one that Jesus uses, His Father, and we too can call Him our Father, but only if we are saved, only if we're His children. The third thing that we looked at was that Jesus aligns Himself with God's timetable. Look, He says, Father, the hour is come. The hour is come. That literally means the time has arrived. And it was what Jesus is talking about is, is the hour that was determined before the foundation of the world where the Son of, of God would make the payment for our sin. And here was the truth that we drew out of that. The truth that we drew out of that was that God has a time. God has a schedule. Jesus came into the world in the fullness of time. Jesus went to the cross at the appointed time. No one could change or alter the course or the time that God had appointed for Jesus. Many people tried to kill Jesus in His ministry, but His hour was not yet come. And the point is that Jesus states that the time has arrived. He was going to fulfill the Father's will. And the application that we made from that is that there are times in life when we struggle, struggle with God's timing in things. Because we want things on our timetable. We want things according to our plan. And it's difficult to patiently wait 
But Jesus was submitted to the timing of God the Father. And it would be great if we could know things in advance, wouldn't it? There's a lot of people who are like that. They're a lot more confident if they know the schedule and they see the end and like here's the plan and they know exactly what's going to happen and they see the end result and okay, I'm safe. A lot of people are like that. Well, we can't know that and we can't do that in life, but we can know this. We can know that God is sovereign, that God is is my Father, that anything that comes into my life is not out of His care or control, that I can trust Him. Jesus endured the cross by trusting that the Father had determined the hour. And you and I can walk through life, even in trial, knowing that God is the one who is controlling history. In fact, God is writing your history. And He wants glory out of your life. He wants to be glorified in your life, even in the struggles, even in the trials. And the challenge is this, to line ourselves up with His calendar, to line ourselves up with His clock, and let His will be done. That's the challenge. Jesus said, the hour has come. And then the last thing, and the thing that we really focused on, was that Jesus sought after God's glory. He says in the last part of verse 1, Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. You skip down to verse 4, Jesus says, I have glorified thee on the earth. In verse 5, Jesus says, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. This is really what Christ's life was all about. And the application that we made was that that should be our only aim as well. And we asked the question, what is it that drives your life? Is it success? Does fear drive you? Does work drive you? Does family drive you? Does money or possessions drive you? Does recreation drive you? The need for approval of others, does that drive you and motivate you? Is there resentment or anger in your life that drives you, causes you to make decisions you make? Does temporal things drive you? And the truth is, there should only be one thing that ultimately drives our life, and that is the glory of God. What does it mean to give glory to God? It literally means to be heavy. It means to be weighty. And it has to do with God's reputation. It has to do with God's splendor. It's also related to the word magnify. That when we give God glory, we're acknowledging His impact or His effect in my life. And I'm magnifying and helping others to see how majestic and big and beautiful God is. The opposite of giving glory to God is receiving it for self, selfishness. And if I'm interested in taking credit for something, if I'm interested in making it about me, God isn't the one getting the glory. How do you know when when your life is about giving glory to the Lord? Well, one of the ways is that when it doesn't matter to you to be outshined by someone else, as long as the Lord is the one who's receiving the praise. And the conclusion was, 
that we need to work at doing everything for God's glory, like 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. And what that means, it's not just church stuff. It's not just service, Christian service. It's not, it's not just when we come through the doors. It's how you do your job. It's how you interact with people that you don't agree with. It's how you treat your spouse. It's how you talk to your kids. It's how you talk to your parents. It's how you respond to other people. It's how you spend your free time. That's what it has to do with. And we so easily make it about us. We think we're right. Well, we have to work at doing everything for the glory of God. And, you know, we hear people who say we live for the weekend. But as Christian people, we ought to be living for the glory of God. So that's what we covered before. Now, look at verses 2 and verse 3. And here we find that Jesus defines for us what eternal life is. He says, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Here Jesus defines for us what eternal life is. And he simply put, he says that eternal life is defined as a relationship of knowing God and His Son, Jesus Christ. This refers to both intellectual and experiential knowledge. This is something that's also given in the present tense, which means this. It means that we are to keep on knowing God continually. That there's never a point where, okay, I know enough, or I've learned enough. It's experiential knowledge to keep on knowing God. And this God that we know is the one true God. Not a man-made religion, and not some man-made feel-good ideas that are being presented. The one true God, to know Him. There are two different words that are translated as the word know in the English language, and they come from the Greek language. One of them has to do with observation. I know something by observation. I've learned by observation. The other has to do with an active, experiential relationship. Like, I know this, I know the reality of this by experience, not just by something I observe. It's the second one that Jesus is talking about here. This is the essence of what eternal life is, to know God experientially. And when I know Him experientially, it impacts and affects my life. So, let me make this application. Because there are many, and I'm going to put it in quotes here on purpose, Christian people who make observations about God. They know some intellectual things regarding God, but they've never really encountered Him in a personal relationship through His Son, Jesus Christ. I know God, not just by head knowledge. I know God not just by propositional truth. I know God in my heart by experience. I know God intimately in relation to Him. 
That's what Jesus is talking about. Here's the essence of eternal life. I read something this week that was kind of shocking or surprising to me, and maybe it shouldn't be, but I was like, what? Like, what in the world? That was my response when I read this. But here's what I read. I read that some churches are considering using holograms of their pastor to appear in their multi-campus locations. This is a thing going on in churches now. We've got our church in the main campus, and then in this other town or other place we have our you know, this other campus or whatever. That's what they're calling them now, these, these, these campuses. And churches are considering using holograms of their pastor in their multi-campus locations, uh, and, and that, that hologram is going to do the preaching, but the pastor would be present somewhere else. And I, <laughs> I, was, I was reading with a little bit of shock, like, what in the world? Like, is it like Star Wars? What is this? You know, kind of a thing. But I, I, as I read on, the article uh, went on to talk about how people responded to that idea. And there was a couple of comments that were left regarding this. And one person commented and said, I guess, I guess that would probably be a problem if the congregation were holograms too. Because where's the, where's the money coming from then? Where's the offerings happening? And another person said, real fellowship requires interaction between believers. I think technology makes things so impersonal sometimes. And I thought that that was actually really good because many people say they have a relationship with God, but to, but to them, God is nothing more than a hologram. I have a relationship with God, but He's nothing more than, a, than an image or, or something in my mind. And friend, what I'm saying is a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ is designed to be personal. When you repent of your sin and you put your full faith for salvation in Jesus Christ, you receive eternal life. But understand this, eternal life is not just quantitative, meaning that you stick around for a really long time or forever. That's not what eternal life is. Eternal life is qualitative. When we have a relationship of knowing God, I can experience Him in reality right now. Let me, just, let me just illustrate it this way. What does that actually look like? Because for so many people, there are these ideas and these concepts and they're propositional truths that never become reality in people's life. And that's how Christianity is. That's what religion is. We hold to some basically figment of our imagination. We hold to some, some concept out there, but we don't actually know how that applies in life. When knowing God is meant to be personal, it's meant to be uh, 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 experiential, that I can experience Him in reality right now and His truth. For example, sin puts us in bondage. There are people in, in our culture and society and has for, 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 for since the world began, since sin entered into the world, no doubt. But we can relate to that which is, is, is reality now. That people struggle with addictions of alcohol and people struggle with, in bondage with, with, with drug addictions and pornography and all of these other things. 
And people are in bondage to their sin in reality. And, and, and there might be some help and there might be some, some relief to some degree with some programs out there like AA, for example. But true freedom, true freedom from bondage comes when a person comes to truly know in an experiential way the Lord Jesus Christ. They're set free from the reality of that bondage. They're set free from that sin with a power that cannot be, that cannot be measured and a power that cannot be uh, duplicated in this world. Do you know that it's possible to be religious and still not ever have a relationship with God? Go back in John chapter 8. Jesus addresses this with the religious leaders of the day. And he says to them in John chapter 8 and verse 53, here, here they're talking and they said to Jesus, Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself... My honor is nothing. Look, he's, like, he's like, if I give accolades to myself and praise to myself, that doesn't mean anything at all. He says, It is my Father, God the Father, that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his sayings. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Jesus says to these religious leaders, you say that he's your God. You're religious, but you don't know him. I know him. And if I said I don't know him, then I'd be a liar just like you. In other words, people who say that they know God and they're religious, but they don't actually have a real relationship with him, they're liars. That's what Jesus said. Even having close proximity to the person of Jesus Christ doesn't guarantee that you know Him personally. And there's a point in time in which, like I said before, propositional truth becomes personal truth. Head knowledge about things becomes heart knowledge. And when we know, and like I said before, this is the way religion is. And I wonder if this is true in a lot of even good churches, in Baptist churches, where people say, oh, we believe the principles of the Bible. We have a conviction to follow Bible principle. But in reality, we don't even know what that looks like in real life. We don't know how that applies. And there's all of these conceptual truths out here that never become reality in my life. When do you know, know, know that something is true? When I've walked it and I've lived it and no one can tell me different because I know this is true because I walked right through it and lived it. How do we know Bible principles are true? When we take that conceptual truth and we apply it in life, and I walk through it, and then I realize that what God said was true. God is faithful. I know and I believe this because God did it. That's, what, that's the reality of eternal life. 
knowing God. But not just on a conceptual level, not just on an intellectual level, but I know Him personally, intimately, because I've walked with Him. And He's true. Does that make sense? That's, re- that's eternal life. I was at the men's conference this last week. I preached a couple of different times, and there were... By the way, Pastor Fryman says hello. wanted to greet the church. Brother McDowell said the same thing. He wanted to greet you folks. We had the, ser- the services and preaching on biblical manhood and godliness and all of those things. And there was one, at one point, in the middle of it all, we had this question and answer time. And it was, it was a, a panel. And, and basically, they had uh, the preachers that were there sit up on the platform, and there was several questions that were given that were taken from various points and different messages and so on. But they had two men also on that panel who were both businessmen. They were laymen in, in, in the church, not, not both of them from, the, from that church. One was from a different one. One was from the church. But they were, they were good, godly Christian men who owned businesses, who lived you know, a regular life. They weren't, weren't all preachers that were up there. And there was, and I personally, I, I, I appreciated what, what those men had to say a lot more than what any preacher had to say. <laughs> personally. And the reason was this, because one of the questions was asked, and I don't even recall exactly what the question was, but it was directed towards one of those men, actually both of them, and what they were saying was things that they had learned in life about God and about the principles of God's Word and, and the one was giving real-life illustration of why that truth is real and why he believes it. And, and, and he was talking about how he owned businesses, and there was a point in time when he was face-to-face with the reality of, of losing everything or continuing to give to God. And by faith, he's like, I don't care if we lose everything. I have a conviction. I'm going to give to God anyway. And you write the check regardless of what they do or what they say. And he was talking about this experience and how, and how it was, it was a, a crisis point of faith in his life, but he was going to trust God and he was going to trust the principles of God's Word and he was going to walk through this believing that God was real and true, no matter what. And so he did, by faith. And he tells the story about how instantly after that, or or very, very shortly after that, everything began to completely turn around in his businesses and so on. And God began to bless and bless. And I'm telling you, this man is a wealthy man, and he's a giver. He is a giver, giver, giver. It's amazing how God just keeps blessing him so he can keep on giving. But the thought was, and the thing that struck me was, This man knows and believes that's true because he had to walk through it. And he did it by faith. It wasn't just a concept out there. 
It wasn't just something that the Bible teaches, but isn't reality in my life. But that is so often how people live. We believe in God. I have a relationship with God, but there's no reality of that that's affecting my life. Are you following me? Are you, are you with me here? All it is is a bunch of words. All it is is a bunch of words, and a lot of times we become liars. Well, see, the reality of eternal life is that I can know God in a true experience. That's eternal life. Now, I don't want to get off track here. But what I'm saying is, even close proximity to Jesus Christ or saying that I know God basically can make me religious, but I can still be void of a real relationship with God. And the question is, have you entered into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ? And you say, yes, I have. I'm saved. Then here's the next question. Are you growing in your knowledge of Jesus Christ? Look in Philippians chapter 3 and note the Apostle Paul's testimony here. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7 Paul says, but what things were gained to me, he's talking about those temporal things of life, those I counted loss for Christ. He's talking about personal accolades. He's talking about personal accomplishments. He's talking about his religious activities. He's talking about all those things, those things that were personally of gain to him. Those are the things that he counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, it, it, the, the things of life I count as lost. Those, and, and, and for something that is far greater than all of those things, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, he says, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. That word win means to gain. So I can gain Christ. What does he mean to gain Christ? He says in verse 9, to be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. He says, why do I count all those things but loss? Why is there there's something that's far greater? It's the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. And the goal is to know him. To know him in such a way that His life is being formed in mine. Christ-likeness. And he says, even the partnership, the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. And he goes on to talk about Christ-likeness being the goal. He's not apprehended. He hasn't arrived yet, but he's pressing toward that mark toward that thing of being Christ-like. He says, I want to know Him in experience. 2 Peter 3 and verse 18 says, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. What is this that I'm talking about here? This is experiencing the reality of Christ in my life more and more 
that works effectual change in me in the way that I think and the way that I live. This is knowing Jesus Christ. I know Him in an experiential way. I experience Him in reality, and it effectually works to change the way that I think and the way that I live. That is life eternal, to know God. When you know God personally and intimately in relationship, there can't help but be a change that He makes in your life. It's not just sticking around forever. It's His life being lived and created in you. So Jesus defines for me, for us, what eternal life is. And there's a lot of people who say they know God and have a relationship with God, but there's no evidence that they know Him. Amen? Do you know Him? Now look at verse 4. Go back to our text in John chapter 17. And we find here how Jesus affirms how it is that He glorified the Father because we said that the goal of Jesus' life was to give glory to God. In verse 4, He says, I have glorified Thee on the earth. I have finished the work which Thou gavest Me to do. Here Jesus affirms how it is that He glorified the Father. He says, He says, I've finished the work that you've given me to do. In this statement, Jesus tells us how it was that He glorified God by finishing the work that God had given Him to do. What was His work? Well, John 4 and verse 34, Jesus said, My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. That was the the goal of His his existence, His life. And this, this last phase of Jesus' work was going to be going to the cross. It was about to be accomplished just a short time later when He would go to the cross and become sin for every man. He was looking ahead to when He would bear the wrath of God on sin on His own body. But Jesus spoke these words as if it had already happened. And in this, what I see is the submission and the faithfulness and the diligence of Jesus Christ to do the will of God. His death on the cross was a certainty. Even though He would pray in the garden, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But see, there was no other way for sin to be, the penalty for sin to be paid. And so Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus was submitted to the will of God. He was faithful to fulfill it. He was diligent in what the Lord had given him, God the Father had given him to do. Not only do we see his submission and his faithfulness, but we also see the completeness of redemption here. Because Jesus said, I finished the work that you've given me to do. The completeness of redemption. There are, many, there are many in this world who believe that they have to keep trying and trying and working and working in order for God to accept them. It's why you see in other cultures people crawling on their hands and knees over rocks and stones and, and glass and climbing up stairs on their hands and knees to get to the top and, 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 and to, to try to, to give some sort of, uh, of, of sacrifice of themselves to the God so, they can be, so God would be pleased with them. They've got to keep working and trying. 
But that's not true. What Jesus accomplished on the cross is complete. And it's totally finished. And we find acceptance from God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Right before Jesus died in John 19 and verse 30, Jesus said, It is finished. Which means that the debt for sin had been paid. The mission had been accomplished. Now, that hasn't happened yet. That's coming in just a little while. So Jesus is looking ahead a few hours down the road uh, to, to the finished work on the cross. But this is how Jesus glorified God the Father, by finishing the work that He'd given Him to do. So He's talking about the cross, but I want to point something else out. Because I believe that the words that Jesus uses here, I've finished the work that you've given me to do, also refers to something else very significant. What was the work that Jesus had to do? He said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. But Jesus also said in Matthew 16 and verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus' strategy for reaching the world was to pour himself into people. Men were his method of reaching the world. And Jesus established his church with his disciples. His earthly work was finished. He built his assembly. I finished the work that you've given me to do. And we say that he's finished the work. And yet, let me say this, his work still remains in that he would then commission his church to carry on as his body and to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Matthew chapter 28, turn over there, very familiar to you in this church. Your pastors have taught and preached on this passage many times. Jesus said, I will build my church. He established his church with his disciples, but then he commissioned his church to carry on as his body. In verse 18, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power, that's authority, exousia, is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye, therefore, and teach all nations. It means to make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost, teaching or discipling them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Jesus built His church. Jesus finished the work. His method was men. He commissioned His church to carry on as His body, and to go into the world and preach the gospel. Jesus identifies for us how it was that he glorified God by finishing the work. And I'm going to make an application with that, for that in just a minute. But look at verse 5. Go back to our text in John 17 and look at verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. 
Here Jesus prays for the restoration of His former glory. He says, glorify me with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Jesus is praying for full restoration of His pre-incarnate glory and fellowship with the Father. In John chapter 1, in verse 18, the Bible says, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. In other words, it's the Son who declares the Father. It's the Son who reveals who God is. It's the Son who's in the bosom of the Father that gives Him the opportunity and the right and the knowledge and the ability to declare and show who God actually is. It shows that His pre-existence enabled Him to reveal the Father to people. In John 8 and verse 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Here Jesus was revealing again His eternal existence. And all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has declared that He came from heaven. He came from God. John 3.13 No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Fathom that. The one who existed from all eternity past with the Father laid aside His glory to become a man. You can read about it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that he humbled himself and became of no reputation. He laid aside his heavenly glory to come to this earth. That God-man would go to the cross fulfilling the Father's perfect plan for the salvation of mankind. And one pastor said this, he said the cross was the way home to the Father. The cross was the gateway to glory, where Jesus will be restored to the full blazing glory that He knew before He humbled Himself and came to this world. The cross was the gateway to glory. What I'm saying is this, Jesus was, he'd finished the work that God had given him to do, and Jesus is praying for the full restoration of the glory that he had with the Father. As you read the book of Acts, you remember the account of Stephen being stoned? And when Stephen was stoned, what did he do before he died? He lifted up his eyes into heaven. What did he see? He saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father. The prayer that Jesus prayed here was answered in full. Amen? I might be losing some of you. Some of you look like you're going to sleep. Let me just say this. If you know Jesus Christ relationally, there's glory to come for you too. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Until that day comes, when we're out of here, and there's glory for us, until that day comes, we have a purpose for our existence. 
And that purpose is to bring glory to God. And Jesus left us a tremendous example in His prayer that He prayed. How did He glorify God? He asked the Father to glorify Him because He had finished the work that He had given Him. He prayed confidently as an obedient son. Lord, give me the glory back. Father, give me the glory back that I had with You because I finished the work that You've given me to do. Now let me make this thought, and I'll be done here just shortly. Do our prayers lack confidence because we're not really committed to the work that God wants us to do? We pray about things. Lord, bless the native ministry. Lord, do this. Lord, do that. And we have these prayers that we pray, but they're not full of confidence that God is going to do His work because the reality is none of us are really committed to the work that God wants us to do. Praise the Lord for restoring the jail ministry. Something we've prayed about. Direct answer to prayer. God did that for a reason. We need to do something with it. Amen? Are we committed to the work that God has given us to do? Jesus' work was to reveal the Father to His disciples and to the world, and then to enable them to continue His work through His church, even to the present day. And now, friend, we, we have the opportunity to bring glory to God ourselves. How do we do that? We do that by finishing the work that He's given us to do. What is that work? Well, the Bible tells us what God requires of us. In Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, the Bible says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? He showed us what the Lord requires of thee. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. What is it that God requires? To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. There's another thing that the Lord has required of us as New Testament saints, as members of a New Testament church, and that is to preach the gospel and make disciples. We read the verses in Matthew 28 where Jesus says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. As we seek to obey Him in the things that He's commanded us to do, the Lord strengthens us, the Lord enables us so that we might give Him glory. Are you committed to giving God glory? Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How do we give God glory? By being obedient. By knowing Him relationally. By letting His life be lived and manifested in mine. That's how we give God glory. We can pray all kinds of prayers. Lord, do this. Lord, do that. But you know what? God wants us to be committed to the work that He's given us to do. That means, Lord, I'm yours. If you call me, if you tell me, if you want me 
Maybe you've served God for most of your life. Maybe you've been a faithful church member. Maybe you've even been a preacher. But if the Lord says, I want you to do this, are you committed to finishing the work to give Him glory? Amen? Jesus left us a tremendous example in this prayer. I finished the work. I've glorified you. Now, Lord, restore the glory to me that I had with you before the world was. I think there's a lot of example here of how we, too, can give glory to God. I'm going to trust that the Lord's going to use this in your life today. And He will if you submit yourself, amen, to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as you take your word and apply it and use it, we trust that you will for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.